Squarespace is proud to support students and parents as they listen to Getting In. Learn how creating a personal website can help you stand out with colleges. Go to squarespace.com slash getting in. Getting In is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lithcott-Hames, and I want to start today by playing something for you. I know my parents love me, stand behind me, come what may. I know now that I'm ready, because I finally heard them say, it's a different world from where you come from. As many of you will recall, that is the theme song to A Different World, the successful sitcom and Cosby Show spinoff from the late 1980s and early 1990s. It was set at a fictional, historically black college called Hillman and ended up having a pretty big impact in getting real-life historically black colleges on everyone's radar, by which I mean on the radar of mainstream America. Historically black colleges, of course, have been very much a part of the fabric of life for African Americans for centuries. Three decades later, the sitcom is still a cultural touchstone. When you bring up the topic of historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs as they're known, and that's what we're exploring on the podcast today. We'll talk to an expert on HBCUs, and we'll hear about what the HBCU experience was like for a recent alum. Personally, I'm so excited to have the chance to be part of this conversation. A couple of my relatives attended HBCUs. My grandfather, George Lithcott, attended Claflin College in South Carolina. And my sister-in-law, Billy Avery, is a graduate of Talladega in Alabama. I'm lucky to have two guests who know a whole lot more about HBCUs than I do joining me today, Mary Beth Gasman and Brianna Williams. Mary Beth is a professor of higher education at the University of Pennsylvania. She's an historian whose area of research focuses on historically black colleges and universities, and she directs the Penn Center for Minority-Serving Institutions. And, like me, she's the mother of a high school junior going through this college process. Mary Beth Gasman, welcome to Getting In. Thanks. It's great to be here. Also with me in the studio is Brianna Williams. Brianna's a stylist and retail manager in New York City, and she's a recent graduate of Howard University in Washington, D.C., where she got her BFA, Bachelor of Fine Arts, in theater. Welcome, Brianna. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Glad to have you. All right, let's begin. Mary Beth, what are the basics we should know when we use the term historically black colleges and universities? Well, there are lots of misconceptions. So the first one is that people don't understand where the term comes from or or what it means. And most historically black colleges, there are 105 of them. Most of them were uh, created with the express purpose of educating African Americans after the Civil War, with the exception of three in the North. And you cannot be a historically black college if you were created after the uh, Higher Education Act of 1965. Okay. So sometimes you'll see a majority black institution now, such as Chicago State is, is one of these, but it's not historically black. Um, historically black colleges get um, special funding because of past discrimination and also their uh, kind of special contributions to uh, the um, United States and the black middle class overall. 
Yeah. So created after the Civil War, so circa 1865, mm-hmm. in a time when we'd been emancipated and yet the structures were not in place for our education and participation in the workforce. Uh, we were post-Reconstruction, we were in Jim Crow, we were in a whites-only era, and these institutions served as a way to educate African Americans in a time when we weren't welcome at uh, plenty of other colleges because of our skin color. Absolutely, and I think it's really important to note that um, these institutions were set up because blacks were not allowed into majority institutions, and and that becomes systematized once we get to the 1890s, where we actually have public black college set up, set up in a completely separate public system throughout the southern states. So that's very important to keep in mind. And then one last thing that's so important is that there's a cadre of these, a small group, that were created by African Americans um, who were formerly enslaved for African Americans. And those are the African Methodist Episcopal Church schools, as well as the um, African Methodist Episcopal Zion schools. So sometimes people forget that uh, African Americans were also very instrumental in creating black colleges, although the majority of them were the the early establishers of those institutions happened to be white um, because they were the people who had the power to do that. Okay. I see that your research also focuses on something called Minority Serving Institutions, or MSIs. Uh That term is a federal designation, as I understand it. What does that actually mean? So minority-serving institutions, there are roughly 600 of them. They do include historically black colleges, uh, and there, are, like I said, there are 105 of those. They also include uh, Hispanic-serving institutions. There are about 330-some of those. They include tribal colleges. There are roughly 37 of those. And they also include uh, Asian-American Pacific Islander-serving institutions. There are about 100, you know, over 100 of those, um, give or take. And these institutions all, by different definitions, so some of them are based on demographics, some of them are based on tribal connections, some of them are based on history, they are um, under the umbrella of minority-serving institution you know, from the perspective of the federal government. And that allows them to be eligible for a whole variety of different grants that help in the area of student success. But also they get, in many cases, they get extra points in different competitive grant processes across all of the departments within the federal government. And so uh, that designation can be incredibly helpful to bringing resources to students. So what's the difference when we say HBCU versus a minority serving institution is one an umbrella term that encompasses the other uh, what's the distinction between them yes so um, uh, an hbcu would be one of many minority serving institutions got it and okay. there are there are people who have have said to me no hbcus aren't minority serving institutions and you know that's fine everybody has a right to their opinion uh, but they do according to the federal government fall underneath that umbrella and um they uh, they do serve uh, a racial and ethnic minority, and they do uh, benefit from the funding that comes to minority-serving institutions. So it's hard to say you're not something when you receive the funding. Is a minority-serving institution predominantly um, students of color or students who fit the designation that that the school might be focused on? Is it a certain percentage of students who, who meet that demographic or the vast majority? So it, it all depends on which one. At 
historically black colleges, the private black colleges tend to be overwhelmingly African-American or uh, black. So they might also have Africans, uh, Caribbeans, and then African-Americans. The, the, so the, the, the large majority of private HBCUs typically is black. At public HBCUs, there tends to be a lot more diversity. However, that is changing. You are seeing more private HBCUs becoming more diverse. Overall, HBCUs are about 13% white, 3% Latino, 2% Asian, and then you've got a growing number of racially mixed students. So they're multiracial. And as we know, the, the fastest growing um, baby population in the country are multiracial babies. And so you're going to see this more. This is a growing population across all colleges and universities. If you're talking about Hispanic serving institutions, you need to have at least 25% of your, pop, your student population to be Latino. Latino, most HSIs are overwhelmingly Latino. So, you know, some of the really big ones, Florida International, University of Texas, El Paso, Cal State, Fresno, Cal State Northridge, these institutions are have large, large numbers of Latinos, sometimes up to 90%, 80%, 95%. The Asian American Pacific Islander serving institutions, they only have to have 10% low income. That's the key, low income Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, but they tend to have quite a few more. And, you know, a Cal State Fresno is also one of those, a Cal State Sacramento, a University of Houston, a University of Massachusetts, Boston, a lot of small uh, community colleges, uh, North Seattle Community College, South Seattle Community College. Those are AAPI serving institutions. And then the tribal colleges, they are uh, designated by um, having that tribal affiliation, and they were created during a time of Indian self-determination during the 1970s. And so the, all of them have a different population, but most of these institutions are incredibly diverse across the board in terms of their faculty, their staff, their students. And they're not only diverse in terms of racial and ethnic makeup, but also socioeconomic status, religion, country of origin. I often tell people, because I always hear people say, well, it's not the real world. No, it is the real world. <laughs> it is the real world. At majority mm -hmm. institutions, we typically are not operating in the real world. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you've thrown out the names of a number of great institutions. I'll, I'll add to the list, and maybe you'll add a few others. Um, when I think of historically black colleges, Howard, Spelman, Morehouse. Absolutely. What are, the, what are the two or three others that come to mind when you think of the institutions that are having the greatest impact and are considered the most prominent? Well, I mean, among HBCUs, of course, um, Howard and Spelman, Morehouse, I think um, oftentimes Claflin is left off yeah. that list, but it yeah. shouldn't be because yeah. Claflin has grown more as an institution that, than many institutions out there. They have an over 50% alumni giving rate. That's on wow. par with Spelman right. or most of the Ivy Leagues. Absolutely. Or, um, and that says you know, the alumni uh, are proud to have gone there. That is the mm -hmm. clearest measure. Yep. Very, very important institution. I think Tuskegee, yeah. I think um, if you go to the publics, I think people should really be looking at North Carolina A&T, mm. at um, Morgan State, at Prairie View. At, um, I think FAMU's coming back. I think it's had a lot of trouble, but I think 
that it has a really good president right now, um, and it's sort of coming back from that. I, I still think that FAMU uh, uh, holds a lot of weight in that area. North Carolina Central, um, they are they are all I think doing very very well in terms of student success on their campuses. So you know among the HBCUs, I would I would um, bring those to the the forefront. Although there are many many others. Tougaloo, for example, mm-hmm. is a wonderful small college in Mississippi mm-hmm. that that has a track record for sending African-Americans to graduate school that is way beyond the norm. So let's let's get into that, Mary Beth. So at the outset, at the top of the show, you said, look, these institutions were established after the Civil War, and you they, they only count as this type of institution if they were established before the Higher Ed Act in 1965, which is ostensibly a time of great change in our country mm-hmm. when a lot of opportunities were made available to African-Americans and some of the barriers were coming down. So it begs the question, why should a kid go to a minority-serving institution or an HBCU in 2016? What's your sense of the value of that kind of education, and and for whom is it the right choice? So um, this is a question I get asked all the time, and one of the things I wanted to bring up is that today uh, there's a really great story in Essence magazine of the top 50 best colleges for African Americans. Oh, nice to know. It's published jointly by Essence and Money and Time, which are all owned by Time. <laughs> and the interesting the interesting thing is that when you look at it, what you find out is that it's a whole combination of different institutions and you you might assume that they might be all black colleges. It actually ended up being a combination in the top of Ivy League institutions and historically black colleges. So the reason why Ivy League institutions are really good for African-Americans is because they graduate. Nice. So it's very hard to get in, um, but they're, they're, they're graduating at uh, either exactly the same level or just slightly, slightly, maybe a percentage or two points less than than whites. So they, they tend to be, and they have a lot of resources. But in that list were also a variety of different HBCUs. And I think that's incredibly important because mm-hmm. HBCUs have so, um, you know, many fewer resources than Ivy League institutions, yet they are still doing a really good job of educating African-Americans. So one of the things that I often say to people is that, you know, you have to decide what kind of environment you want right? You have to decide what kind of environment you want. And I think um, an HBCU is not going to be the right environment for every single black student. Um, it, it just really depends on have you, are, you know, some people are looking for a black experience. Some people are looking for a really nurturing environment. Some people are looking for a certain uh, type of uh, curriculum. So for example, if I want, if I'm African-American and I want to go to medical school, I would probably go to Xavier in New Orleans mm. because they're, they produce more students than anyone else who go on to medical school, and they have a mm. 98% per, pass rate on the medical board exam. Nice. So your chances of becoming a doctor are accelerated mm. if you go to, to Xavier. You know, if I were a young black woman and I uh, was very interested in, let's say, starting my own business or going into the STEM fields, I would go to Spelman. Mm. I wouldn't even think twice about it because what I would do is I would go to Spelman and then probably try to combine that with an Ivy League master's degree or advanced degree. Okay. And I think that's incredibly important. If I wanted to be a professor in the future, I probably would go to Howard. They have produced so Mm -hmm. many Mm -hmm. talented professors. Mm -hmm. 
you know, who people who go on to get degrees either there or elsewhere and um, and do wonderful, wonderful work. Writers, I would probably go there. Yeah. I, I think um, I would also, you know, Prairie View if you want to be a doctor or an engineer. Mary Beth, you know, what, as you're talking, as you're talking about the present day value of attending one of these schools, what I'm hearing in your words is what resonated in my head as a freshman dean at Stanford, which was, it's all about creating a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. We know from research that whomever you are, whatever your background, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, et cetera, when you feel a sense of belonging at a place, you're more likely to thrive, to persist and thrive. And belonging comes from all kinds of things. It comes from not feeling like the only one of your kind, seeing people who look like you, who've trodden the same path you have up ahead as mentors, you know, um, that black experience that you talked about. I was mm-hmm. a black kid in a high school of white kids in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I was the only one. And looking back, yeah, I'm 48 now, looking back on my 18-year-old self, I might have really benefited in ways I couldn't fathom at the time by choosing a place like Howard or Spelman or any number of these other schools you've mentioned. I didn't go that route, but I did go the route of an Ivy type, Stanford, Mm -hmm. where they were very focused on creating a sense of rich community among students of color. And it's the, the schools you mentioned on that essence list, the HBCUs and then the Ivies, it's the Ivies that have the resources to be able to, you know, hire a few more staff who can really help create a sense of community for students who might not otherwise feel that, hey, there are people like me who go, who are who work at this place, who study at this place. So, you know, we're talking about helping kids thrive. Ultimately, this podcast is talking about helping kids make the right choice about the schools to attend. And boy, your experience and, and research on this question of the value of HBCUs is so valuable. But we're going to turn now to our other guest, Brianna Williams. We're so lucky to have her here in the studio today. Brianna's a recent alum of an HBCU, Howard University. Brianna, let's hear about your path to Howard. When did Howard or other HBCUs first get your attention? When did they first come on your radar? And where are you from? Maybe you should start with that. I am originally from uh, Richmond, California, which is right outside of uh, San Francisco. Absolutely. And for me, growing up in the late 80s and 90s, a different world was definitely on my radar major. So that really made me want to go to an HBCU. School Days was one of my favorite movies Mm, growing up. So the notion of the HBCU was always in my life somehow. Growing up in such a diverse place, interestingly enough, the schools I went to, I went to private Catholic schools and they were predominantly white. Mm. So all of my life, K through 12, I was one of maybe six or seven black girls in my elementary school class. And then when I got to high school, my total student body was under a thousand students and there were a hundred to 150 black female students altogether. Mm. Mm. So there was still not a great sense of community mm-hmm. of African Americans. And I always felt like I didn't have that sense of belonging yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Because even though the Bay Area is such a diverse place, there's not a real emphasis on black culture. Mm. And when I started looking at college, I initially wanted to go to a school in New York. Mm. I'd always wanted to be an actress. I knew I had to be in New York. Yeah. But when I looked at those numbers, for example, 
I wanted to go to Barnard initially. Barnard was 10% minority, and of that 10%, only 3% were African American. And you knew what it was like to be such a small percentage in a population, and you didn't want that for yourself. I didn't want that for myself, again, and also because I was studying theater, and I knew I planned on going into a field where the numbers were even more skewed for mm -hmm. black women that I wanted to learn this tradition in a place where not only would I be taught by people that looked like me with people that looked like me, but where they had this tradition of scholarship and alum like Roxy Roker, mm. Felicia Rashad, mm. Debbie Allen, mm. Ruby Dee, mm. who had already gone forth and broken so many barriers. Yeah. And I wanted to be a part of a legacy like that. So why did Howard feel like the best place as you were this, this consciousness was dawning on you that a place like Barnard might not be the right fit, that maybe you wanted a place that had a um, substantial black population. How did Howard become the place? Howard became the place uh, partially because it was in Washington, D.C. Okay. I had gone there once on a class trip, and I loved that there were museums everywhere. Mm -hmm. Someone that was always a role model of mine was Zora Neale Hurston. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that resonated with me about her was that before graduating from Barnard, where she was the only black woman. She went to Howard okay. and got that basis in herself. And I felt like Howard had the potential to really create something in me that would allow me to go to any circle, confident and sure of who I was in my own cultural identity. Did Howard live up to that expectation? Did it deliver on the promise you felt that it was making to you? It has and continues to surpass How so? it How daily. So? so many of the relationships I have in my life are based on the relationships I made at Howard. The knowledge that I received, not just academically, but the life lessons that I learned, I don't think I would have gotten the same level of enrichment at another school. Hmm. The community really is something that reaches far beyond the, the yard as we call it. Yeah. Listeners can't see Brianna's face, but I can. And she's glowing as she describes her undergraduate education. Now, let me tell you something. A lot of people glow when they talk about their undergraduate education, and you should. You want to pick a place that feels so right for you as a fit that years later, as you're talking to some stranger about it on a radio show, on a podcast, <laughs> you're glowing. That's what we want for everyone. You know, there's a there's a resource I often mention on this podcast called The Alumni Factor, which I think is a far better ranking of colleges than U.S. News. And the reason is it looks at alumni outcomes. What are their financial outcomes, net worth, income? What's their happiness rating? How strong are their interpersonal relationships? What's the degree of their intellectual um, development? And they self-report on all these things. You know who comes out highest when it comes to the quality of relationships made in college? the HBCUs, and the U.S. military academies. And there are other colleges that stack up really well, but none higher than the HBCUs, like Spelman, like Howard, like Morehouse in particular, those three, and then you know West Point and Annapolis and so on. So I've read that that's true. I've certainly heard that that's true. And I can see, as you describe your experience, that that, in fact, was true for you at Howard. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to ask you both about some of the benefits that come from attending an HBCU that people may not already appreciate, all right? Great. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. In a minute, more of my conversation with Brianna Williams and Mary Beth Gassman. But first, a few words from our sponsors. Squarespace is proud to support students and parents as they listen to Getting In. Whether you see your future as a clear path or a blank slate, 
With Squarespace, you're off to a beautiful start. Squarespace sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level, and there's no coding required. With intuitive and easy to use tools, Squarespace will even give you a free domain if you sign up for a year. And when you sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code GETTINGIN to get 10% off your first purchase. Create a website that reflects your best skills and talents, because when you start on the right foot, you can go anywhere. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com slash getting in. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Getting In is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you might want to try out is Junk, Digging Through America's Love Affair with Stuff. When journalist Allison Stewart was faced with emptying out her late parents' basement, it got her thinking. How did it come to this? Why do smart, successful people hold on to old Christmas bows, chipped knickknacks, and books they likely will never read? Junk details Stewart's three-year investigation into America's stuff. If you want to listen to Junk or many other books, Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com college. That's audible.com college. We're back on with Penn professor Mary Beth Gasman and Howard University alumna Brianna Williams, and we're talking about historically black colleges. Brianna, how did Howard end up helping you find that sense of identity you were seeking when you first applied? I would say that Howard really gave me a complete understanding of what it is to be an African-American in the global community. Growing up, there are so many people that you don't hear about. Elizabeth Catlett, Charles Drew, people whose contributions really changed the world at large and that still continue to contribute. And my parents were revolutionaries of the 60s. They had it, and I think that I always wanted to find that sense of it for myself. Learning more about your people helped you develop a stronger sense of self. And confidence. And confidence. It changes your beauty standards, too. (laughs) Absolutely. Can you describe other ways you benefited from the Howard experience that aren't necessarily identity-related? I first developed a sense of activism at Howard. My freshman year was during Mm 9-11, and I remember sitting in the dorm saying how terrible I felt watching everything on the news and that I wanted to do something. I wanted to donate blood. I have a universal blood type. Mm -hmm. And one of my new friends sitting next to me said, well, let's go. Let's do it. We got up. We got in the cab. We went to the hospital, and we donated blood. And that was the first time I ever actively did something as an adult Instead of sitting on the sidelines and feeling bad, Mm. I would go on to be active in many other protests when I was there. Uh, The war in Iraq came up. We were very vocal and adamant. We protested marching all the way from campus to the Capitol building at, I think we were there from nine till about midnight. So a sense of political consciousness, a sense of, um, I know more about who I am, where I'm from, who I'm from. And the what role I've contributed, I've contributed, and now what I can contribute. Yes, fantastic, Mary Beth. In your academic research, have you encountered data and trends that illustrate some of the long-term or short-term benefits of attending HBCUs? Sure, um, and I just want to say that um, I'm really excited to hear about Brianna's experiences yeah. because it is 
it is so familiar. You can hear her smile through, yes, you, can. Um, you know, you can just hear it. And it's, it's, it's really nice. Yeah. So um, I, one thing that I was going to say is there, there um, is a new uh, report that just came out from Gallup and Lumina Foundation about hmm. the different experiences for um, black HBCU versus, uh, students versus uh, black students that go to non-HBCUs. Okay. And one of the things is, for example, uh, nationally, about 27% of students feel that their professors cared for them as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, at HBCUs, it's 58%. Yeah, this gets right to that issue of belonging. When your professor it, cares it about you, you are going to work mm-hmm. harder, you're going to feel more invested, you're going to reach Absolutely. out for help, and you're going to take advantage of opportunity. Absolutely. And then here's another thing. Nationally, 22% of students feel that they had a mentor who encouraged them to pursue their dreams. Mm. At HBCUs, it's 42%. Yeah. And they go on and on and on with all of this data that shows the these experiences. So I've, in my research, I've interviewed about 2,000 students and alumni of HBCUs, and they sound exactly like what we heard today. Okay. They sound exactly the same um, as, as um, Brianna's experience at Howard. And, you know, of course, you're always going to have one or two who didn't have a good experience. That's, that, that happens. Everywhere. But overwhelmingly, they had really good experiences. And one of the things that we find is that, and, and Brianna exemplified this as well, that they tend to be more civically oriented, that they tend to be more involved in their communities, that they even tend to take jobs that are more civically oriented and want to do things to uplift African Americans and their communities as a whole. They also tend to be more um, culturally rooted, and that's something that we heard today as well, and have a lot of identity pride. And being proud of who you are does an incredible amount for where you go in the future. And this is what I've found across the board from HBCU alums and from HBCU students. Even after one year, you start to see a difference in the way that young African Americans see themselves. You know, I'm able to smile today about where I am in my life and what matters to me, but I'm 48. And for those who are listening, who are high schoolers of color, who are African American or parents of them, you know, I feel that I'm only just in my 30s and 40s coming to terms with things that I might have been able to resolve much sooner had I been immersed in a predominantly black environment in college. I love where I went to school, but there were things that Stanford couldn't do for me that a place like Howard or Spelman or any of these other schools might have done. Mary Beth, despite the obvious benefits that you've articulated, we've seen some media reports that HBCUs are in decline these days, lower graduation rates, trouble fundraising. What are the biggest challenges facing students at historically black colleges today? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that the enrollments are actually not down, okay. and last year they were up, and I, I, I would attribute that to um, the protest movements and the fact that many black people do not feel valued in the country, and so the HBCUs have become okay. a bit of a sanctuary mm. for young people. Um, however, the, the issue is that there are more people going to college, and so the percentages are smaller. I think there are issues related to black colleges. One of them is fundraising. Unfortunately, all of this, these wonderful feelings that alumni have tend to not manifest in terms of money, and so alumni giving rates at black colleges are low. They're about 10% lower than, on average, than majority institutions, um, there are always going to be the aberrations. The Hamptons and the Spelmans and Morehouse isn't that high, but it's it's higher than the national average. Um, Howard's could be much, much higher, and and it, that's so unfortunate. You know, I always say to people, I have tons and tons of students who went to Howard undergrad and come to graduate school at Penn, and one of the things I say to them is, do you give back to your alma mater? And they're like, well, I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm. 
Do you go to homecoming? Yes, I do. Then you should be giving back. If you have money to go to homecoming, you have yeah. money to give back. And and you have to put your money where your mouth is. If you love your institution and you want that institution to do well, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. People often wonder why alumni continue to give to really wealthy institutions. It's because they want their institution right. to do well. And because the institution isn't shy about asking. It's not shy at all. They ask over and over and over. And and one of the things I've been doing for probably the past 10 years is really working with HBCUs to start asking people immediately and to get even college freshmen in the habit of giving just a little back, like learning how to be philanthropic. That's important. So speaking of those on the young end of the spectrum here, what's the first step a high schooler should take if they're interested in applying to an HBCU or minority serving institution? Is there a good starting place for them to begin their research? Sure. Well, I think one thing you can do is take a look at which black colleges are in the news for positive kinds of things. You can use the college scorecard uh, uh, program that the federal government has. But keep in mind, you want to put in the, the profile of a student like you. So you want to put in your socioeconomic status, your GPA, where you live, um, your, your interests and desires, and, and then you want to look at how does this institution treat a student like you. And that, that's really important. I think there are lots of lists of the top HBCUs and why they're the top HBCUs. Okay. I would take a look at those. I would also see how do they respond to you, what kind of care is taken. Typically, it's going to be good care, but it, it depends. You know, it, it depends. I would look at um, what your major is and how they perform in your major. These are all fair questions that, that students should should be asking. And then I would also think about, do you want to be in a city? Do you want to be in a rural area? Um, if you're from California and you um, go down to rural Mississippi, it's going to be a little different. <laughs> And so, yeah, in a know, whole you, lot of ways. Yeah, you might be better off going to Atlanta or maybe DC. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <So>. Well, <laughs> let's bring Brianna back into the conversation as somebody who went from California to DC. Mm-hmm. When you meet high schoolers who are thinking about the path to college, do you actively try to direct them toward Howard or another HBCU? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I think that especially now, uh, Mary Beth mentioned uh, the current protest movements, uh, Black Lives Matter. I think that even now it's very important to understand the history of African-American life, but also to do it somewhere where you feel safe, where you can thrive, where you will be looked after, where there is a community, mm-hmm. and where you'll also receive a rigorous course of study. Yeah. I think that HBCUs, they're so diverse, just like the black community. Itself. That there's a fit for everyone. Absolutely. And I think that was my concern as a black kid growing up in a white environment. You know, am I the right kind of black person to attend an HBCU. I think when I was 17, I worried I wasn't. And of course, in hindsight, now I'm saying, hmm, I think I probably was. I could have benefited tremendously. So Brianna, before we let you go, I'd love for our listeners to get a sense of what you're doing here in New York. All right. I work for an optical company called Eyewear, managing a store in downtown Brooklyn. And I'm working as a stylist. When I moved to New York, I had planned on working as a makeup artist and mm-hmm. in looking for something to supplement my freelance work, I started uh, working as an optical stylist. And it allowed me to incorporate a lot of what I learned about makeup. The theater administrative things that I learned at Howard really play into uh, what I do every day. Uh, the company I work for, there are 37 stores nationally. And of those 37 stores, four of them are managed by black women. Mm. 
So I feel like my Howard education comes into play with that because uh, even though I am a minority in that sense, I have such a strong sense of myself and what I contribute to my store and what makes my store really stand out in this company. Very nice. It's great to hear. Brianna Williams and Mary Beth Gasman, thanks so much for being on the show today, for sharing your expertise and advice. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. Or you can send a voice memo or email. Our email address is gettingin at slate.com. And there's always our hotline where you can leave a voicemail. That number is 929-999-4353. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our wonderful producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. And please remember, it's not just about getting in someplace. It's about finding the right fit. <laughs>